0: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, الرحيم pray for him and we pray به him and we pray for him. And we pray for Allah from the spirit of our own and of our bad إله إلا الله وحده a شريك له ونشهد أن محمدًا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرة أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما Allahumma Salih Allah Muhammad in Wa Allah Ali Muhammad Kama Salih ala Ibrahim Wa Allah Ali Ibrahim in the Majid Allahumma Barak Allah Muhammad in Wa Allah Ali Muhammad Kama Barak ala Ibrahim Wa Allah Ali Ibrahim in the Majid Respected listeners, Salaamu Alaikum Rahmatullah Ibarakatu In the last dars we were doing the tafsir of Surah balad And unfortunately we were rushed for time So I rushed the end part of the surah Even leaving part of the surah out So today we'll just complete the surah And to cover what's remaining. Furthermore, since I rushed the last part, especially the last few verses, the ones that I did do, I'll just go over them again and hopefully provide more detail than we gained last time. So just to recap, this is Surah Al-Balad, also known as Surah La-Uqsin. And it's a Makkan surah, one of the earlier surahs revealed to the Prophet sallallahu when he first received prophethood in Makkah al-Mukarramah. I'll quickly go through the translation once more, and then I'll begin commenting on the few verses that are remaining. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لا أقسم بهذا البلد. Nay. I do swear by this city. Whilst you are lawful in this city. And by the parents, and by the offspring. Verily, we have created man in distress, "What does he think that no one will gain power over him?" He says, "I have spent abundant wealth." "What does he think that no one has seen him?" Alam najallahu ainain. Have we not made for him two eyes? Walisana washafatain, and a tongue and two lips. Wahdayna hun najdain. And have we not guided him to the two clear paths? Falaqtahma al Aqaba. So why doesn't he plunge? Or why doesn't he scale the ascent? And what do you know? What is the ascent? The emancipation of a soul. Or the feeding. Or feeding in a day of hunger. Yetiman da Makrabah, an orphan, who is of relation, O miskinan da or a poor man, one of the dust, Thumma cana ladina amenu, then he is of those who have believed. Then he is of those who have believed and who have counseled one another to patience and who have counseled one another to mercy. These are the companions of the right. And those who have disbelieved in our signs, they are the companions of the left, or the people of the left. نَارٌ مُصَدَةٌ Over them is a closed fire. These few verses were left, especially the last three and I didn't speak on them at all. And the the other few, beginning from وَمَا دَرَأْ Tahm al-Aqaba, I had to rush. So let's complete these verses today. And this is more or less the second half of the surah. So in the first half, Allah Subhanahu wa taala swears by the city of Mecca. He speaks about the Prophet being halal and lawful in the city and I explain that this is two meanings of being halal one, that the Quraysh considered him to be lawful a lawful target for abuse, for persecution and for harassment and the other meaning of halal is that this was a prophecy that a time will come when the Prophet would be given sanction by Allah To overlook some of the prohibitions of the sanctuary of Makkah. And that was only momentarily. Then after having sworn by these things, Allah speaks about the nature of man's creation and his existence on earth. That it's with great difficulty and it's under great duress. His existence is one of toil and turmoil, trials and uh, tribulation. So that's his life, that's the nature of his existence. And yet man still seeks to make paradise on earth. And in that pursuit of happiness, in that pursuit of bliss, and in that desire to make paradise on earth, Man spends wildly, he spends extravagantly, and then he boasts of this too. And after spending so much and still not discovering that happiness and joy, he says that I have spent a lot of wealth. I've spent abundantly, in good, in bad. And that spending of wealth ultimately leads him to a sense of entitlement and arrogance and delusion so that's the very nature of wealth it makes a person delusional it gives him delusions of grandeur and power so Allah reminds him does he think that no one will have control over him does he think that no one has seen him does he think there is no accountability then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds man that look at the favours we have given you. We have given him two eyes, a tongue, two lips, and we have guided him to the two paths. Now, two clear paths of falsehood and of truth, of guidance and misguidance, of Virtue and sin. Now these few things may seem rather simplistic to us. But in reality they are quite symbolic and they represent a lot. The power of sight. Have we not given him two eyes? The power of sight. And a tongue. The power of speech. Out of millions of species, man alone is able to speak, communicate and converse. And we've guided him to the two paths. This is again symbolic and reflective of man's higher intelligence, his consciousness, and his conscience, his innate and intrinsic ability to distinguish truth from falsehood, good from bad. Then begins the next section of the surah. So, why doesn't man, why doesn't he? scale the ascent and as i explained last week actually means to plunge to rush into to throw oneself at even to penetrate the ranks this is real this is the original meaning of iktiham so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't say it in a mild manner, saying, عقبة, Why doesn't he spend? Why doesn't he do good? Why doesn't he do this? Rather the word is quite strong, And both words are strong. Allah says, why doesn't he, man, plunge at al the ascent, Now, there are many translations that can can actually be given for Aqaba. And all of them are correct. And more or less, they all refer to the same thing. One is, Aqaba is referred to as a very narrow, difficult to cross, unbeaten path high up in the mountain. That's extremely difficult to navigate and to travel along and to cross. And as a result of this meaning, all of them, why I say that there are many translations that can be given to Aqaba. And they are all very similar. Of course, they all refer to different things, but there's a common denominator. This is why the Arabs call all of these things Aqaba. And the common denominator is extreme difficulty. So, akaba also means an obstruction in the path, an obstacle. So, all of the things that can, some of the things that can be called Aqaba are a mountain pass, a high, a gradient, a very steep side of a cliff or mountain, an obstruction or obstacle on the path, a very narrow. Unbeaten path high up in the mountain, all of these are known as Aqaba. So here the meaning of Aqaba is obviously not the mountain path or, or the ascent or, a, or the side of a cliff. Rather the meaning of Aqaba here is something that encompasses a common denominator of all of these things. Which is something which is extremely difficult. And the meaning of being extremely difficult, this is a reference to the obedience of Allah or doing those things that lead to Allah's pleasure, that lead to Jannah. Sayyidina Mu'adh ibn Jibril, he once approached Prophet. I actually referred to this hadith last week. And in the beginning of the hadith, it's mentioned that he said to the Prophet, O Prophet of Allah, guide me. Two, a deed which brings me closer to Jannah and makes me distant from the fire. So, the Prophet wasallam told him, O oh Mu'adh, you've asked for a great thing, an immense thing. But it is easy for one for whom Allah makes it easy. The obedience of Allah, living one's life in a good manner, Achieving good, doing good, and gaining paradise is not that simple. And that's why in a hadith, Rasulullah says, Allah in the Allah Allah in Allah Lo and behold, the products of Allah is expensive. Lo and behold, the products of Allah is expensive and that's the, what's the product of Allah jannah jannah is expensive in, in a verse of the quran allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says am hasidtum an tadkhulul jannata wa lam ma ya'tikum mathalul ladina khalaw min qablikum massathumul ba'sa wad-dara wa zulzilu hatta yaqulur rasul wal ladina amanu ma'ahu mata nasallallah Allah, Inna Allah says, "What do you think that you will enter Jannah, even though the like of those days have, has not yet visited you? The likes of those days have not yet visited you, or the like of the like has not yet visited you." of those people who passed and who came before you. Masathumul الْبَأْسَاءُ وَالْضَّرَّةُ Affliction and misfortune befell them. وَزُلْزِلُوا and they were shaken. So much so, حَتَّى يَقُولَ الرَّسُولُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مَعْهُ مَتَى نَصْرُ اللَّهُ That even those who believed and the messenger. Even the Messenger and those who believed with him said, When will the help of Allah come? So, again, the the verse ends with the words, Allah inna nasrullahi qareem. Lo and behold, the nasr, the help of Allah, is close, is nigh. But the beginning of the verse refers to this same point. Now, what do you think? That you will just enter Jannah without undergoing the trials and the tribulations? And the tests of those who came before you. And who does Allah mention? Namely the messenger and those who were with him. So even the prophets of Allah found and experienced and faced immense difficulty and hardship in life. And the obedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wasn't as easy for them. And the, their companion, Not not the prophets but the companions who are with them Life is difficult The obedience of Allah is not easy either The product of Allah is expensive This is why We can't just take deen in our stride It requires an effort It requires great sacrifice One has to must a great willpower and resolve. And one has to practice with great steadfastness. For it's easy to be swayed. So this is why Allah uses the words, فَلَقْطَحْمَ الْعَقَبَةِ Why doesn't he plunge into the obstacle? Why doesn't he scale the ascent? Why doesn't he... And the meaning is that if you imagine it to be a difficult mountain pass... It's imposing, it's intimidating, it's foreboding. But if a person wants to reach the other side, one has to. Even with great fear and trepidation. Squeeze oneself through that path and emerge on the other side. So Allah says, Why doesn't he plunge? Into the obstacle. Why doesn't he scale the ascent? And what do you know? Is the aqabah, is the ascent. So Allah then defines the aqabah, The difficulty. But a difficulty which, if negotiated, navigated, which if overcome, leads to great relief and success. Like any obstacle, Like any difficult path. If a person crosses it, you don't arrive at it and turn back. You overcome it. You make a strenuous effort. And you try to reach the other side. So it's not easy. Once it's done, once it's achieved, after that, beyond that, lies great success. So here too, Allah says the aqabah. What is the aqaba? Allah mentions a few things. One, fakurakaba, raqaba. The freeing of a soul. The emancipation of a soul. Aw itamun fi yawmin dhi Or feeding on a day of hunger. Yatiman dha maqraba. Feeding who? An orphan of relation. Aw miskeen dha Or a poor person. Of the dust. Then he is of those who have believed. And who have counseled each other to sabr, to patience. And who have counseled one another to mercy and compassion. Allah says, These are the people, the companions of the right. So let's go through these few things of the aqabah, which aren't easy, but which lead to great virtue, great reward, great success, and great relief, in this dunya and in the akhirah. One faqq the emancipation of a soul. Now rakaba literally means a neck. So what's meant by neck? A person. In Arabic, like in any other language, or in most languages at least, part of the body is used to refer to the whole. The hand is used to refer to the whole. The neck is used to refer to the whole. We have that in English too, when we say giving someone's hand in marriage. But it's part of the body is used to refer to the whole body. So here too, raqaba actually just means neck. So فَقْ وراقبة, The freeing of a neck. The emancipation of a neck. And what does a neck refer to? A soul, a person. The freeing of a soul. The freeing of a person. And this is what's important. فَقْ وراقبة, In these two words, literally and originally, there's no actual meaning of slavery. It just, means to unwrap, to dismantle, to break. Release to free. So Fakkuraqaba to the releasing of a person. So in originally, in the two words, it doesn't mean emancipating or freeing a slave. It just means liberating and releasing and freeing a person. So anyone who needs freedom freedom from slavery. Freedom from exploitation, freedom from oppression, freedom from persecution, freedom from dhulm, freedom from injustice, freedom from false imprisonment. All of these are examples of a person's neck and body, soul and life being in shackles. To remove that those shackles, to unfetter them. To liberate them, to free them from bondage, regardless of the nature of the slavery, whether it's legal, political, social, economic, whether it's subjugation or exploitation. Any effort and endeavour to free a person from what they should be free from is an act of great virtue. And it's actually included in this verse. And it doesn't mean one has to be solely responsible for it. A Bedouin, Imam Ahad ibn al relates a hadith in which it's mentioned that a, a Bedouin came to the Prophet sallallahu And he said to him, Ya Rasulullah, tell me something which will lead me to Jannah. So the Prophet sallallahu actually began with the words, the emancipation of a soul or the release of a neck of a person. So the Bedouin said, Ya Rasulullah, are they both the same? The emancipation of a person or the freeing of a soul. So the Bedouin said, Ya Rasulullah, and they both wanted the same thing. So the Prophet said, No. عِدْقُ The emancipation of a person, or the freedom of a person, is when you individually and single-handedly liberate and free a person by yourself. And فَقُّ is when you just play a part. When you make a contribution. So, as I said earlier, it doesn't mean a person has to be single-handedly and solely responsible for that emancip- emancipation and freedom. So fakku and at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, sahaba radhiyallahu anhum, this is what they practiced. This is what the Prophet sallallahu encouraged: free the slaves, give people their freedom, win freedom, and even in Makkah al at a time of extreme difficulty, Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq an freed many men and women of his own accord. And in fact, his father said to him, "That, O oh my son, I see you freeing people from slavery. But the people you free are weak." He liberated. He freed five women from slavery. So he said, "The people you free are weak." They are helpless. In the sense that you've done them a great favour, but they can never repay your favour. So why don't you free strong, sturdy men who will come of use to you someday? That was his father's advice to him. So Abu Bakr radiyallahu and said to him, Oh father, I free them only for the sake of Allah. And that practice continued for the Sahaba anhum in Makkah. ...and in Medina. (coughs) In fact, in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala encouraged the believers... ...to free slaves, to emancipate people. And this is in relation to those who are actual slaves, who are owned by others... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa Encourage them to free as many as possible And even for small things in the Quran If a man likened his wife to his mother It was, it was a particular phrase that the Arabs used And by using that phrase It was symbolic and it was a reference to their separation and their divorce. They would normally say, That the man would say to the wife, You are to me like my mother. Again, literally the back of my mother. So referring to a part, sorry, mentioning a part but referring to the whole. So, عليك ظهر You are to me like the back of my mother and Meaning, you, to me, you are like my mother So if someone said that amongst the Arabs What they were actually saying is that You are now as haram for me as my own mother So it was actually a divorce or a separation But in Islam, that no longer remains a case it's much more qualified and there are rules about it. But one of the rules is, as Allah mentions in Surah al Mujadalah, that once a person says these words, then in Islam, the ruling is that the husband has to either, has to, now has to make a choice, either ratify those words by an actual divorce, by confirming it and saying, saying it and confirming it, or by reconciling with the wife. But if a person does so, then they have to pay a kaffar, they have to pay a compensation. And what's a compensation? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That if those men who do zihar, i.e., they liken their wives to their mothers and who use this phrase, then they retract their statements and therefore they retract what they say and they remain with their wives. They can't just remain like that, they have to pay a kafara, a compensation for. What they have done. I was speaking about kufr. What's kufr? Concealment. And that's where the word kafara comes from as well. Because the word kafara comes from kufr, something which excessively covers and conceals something from the past. So that's how it serves and acts as compensation. If you commit a wrong then you do a good deed, and if that good deed is good enough and sufficient, is sufficient, then it will compensate for, it will obliterate and eradicate the former ill marks of one's wrongdoing or sin. And that's why it's known as a kafar, an expiation, a compensation. And the word kaffara is related to kufr. Why is it called kafar? Because it covers, it conceals. It obliterates, it removes. So Allah says, if someone does the dhihar, then what's the kafarah? Allah immediately mentions nothing else. Raqaba, the freeing of a neck. So for something as minor as someone doing dhihar, of course in itself it may not be minor, but the, it's automatically not a divorce. So even for zihar, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the kafara, the expiation, the compensation, is al raqaba, the freeing of a neck of a person, of a soul. And even when one makes a promise, and they are unable to keep that promise, there is a kafara. لا يؤاخذكم الله باللغب في Allah says in the Qur'an, in سُورَةُ Al لَا يُؤَاخذَكُمُ اللَّهُ بِاللَّغْبِ فِي أَيْمَانِكُمْ وَلَكِنْ يؤاخذكم بِمَا عقدتم الْأَيْمَانِ فَكَفَّارَتُهُ إِطْعَامُ عَشَرَةٍ مَسَاكِينٍ مِنْ أوسط مَا تطعمون أَهْلِيكُمْ أو كِسْبَتُهُمْ أَوْ تَحْرِيرُ رَقَبَةٍ فَمَنْ لَمْ يَجِدْ فَصْيَامُ ثَلَاثَةِ question ذَلِكَ كَفَّارَةُ question For your vain oaths, and the meaning of vain oaths is when a person says, takes Allah's name in vain, I swear by Allah, wallahi tallahi billahi, so these are vain oaths, Allah will not seize you, Allah will not hold you to account for these oaths taken in vain. you but when you make a promise that you will do something or you will adhere to something or abide by something then and then you take an oath on that that's not taking Allah's name in vain you are ratifying your promise you are sealing your promise with an oath of Allah if you then break that oath, then you must pay compensation. Kafarah. So what is a kafarah? Yit'amu ashratim The feeding of ten poor people. Of your average food. Or even clothing. Or the freeing of a soul. And someone who is unable to feed or to free, then their kafarah and expiation of an unfulfilled oath and promise is three days fasting. Then Allah reminds us, Wahfazu aymanakum. That be mindful of your oaths. Guard your oaths. So even for simple things such as breaking one's promise and having to pay kafara and compensation, or saying the words of dihar in marriage, which doesn't lead to a divorce. But which then has to be qualified and the rules are complex. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prescribed the freeing of souls, the freeing of people as a kafara, as an expiation. So something as simple as that. That shows how encouraged the sahaba were by Allah and his messenger sallallahu to free people. So فَقْرَقَبَ اَوْ اِطْعَامٌ فِيَوْمٍ في ذِي Or feeding people. This is the second thing of Aqaba. Now Aqaba, like I said, it's not easy, it's difficult, it's hard. So the first one is freeing people. The second thing is feeding people. To free people, to feed people. To feed people, not just in feasts, or to entertain. فِيَوْمٍ في ذِي مَسْغَبَ Because even when we feed people, it's a gift, it's not sadaqah, I, when we feed friends, family, when we attend functions, banquets, or invitations, when we host and entertain, then this isn't an act of charity, it's not sadaqah, it's a form of hadith. Of course we may be instilling love in one another, we may be honoring one another, and that's a virtue in itself, but ultimately it's not sadaqah, it's not charity. Because, as I said, that can hardly be altruistic. There is always a kickback. There is always a gain. We feed people, we win their love, we win their admiration, we win their recognition. We win their future favour. It's a currency. And this is what's important. Currency is not just pound notes and coins. Currency is not just a bank balance. Currency is anything which serves as a means and a power for you to be able to achieve something. Power itself is currency. Influence is currency. Position is currency. Favors are a form of currency. And that's why in Islam, Allahu Akbar. If one gives zakah, there can be no favor. And therefore, when a person gives zakah, one of the rules of zakah is, as I explained in thorough detail in Kitab al-Zakah, when we commented on Sahih al-Bukhari, is The tamlik. tamlik means you make the other person the sole rightful owner of your charity. That means you've given it to them. They can do what they want with it. You have no right to question them. You cannot wield any influence. You cannot demand anything of them. You cannot request anything of them. In fact, you can't even expect anything of them. If you do, even many years later, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, your charity will be abolished. Very beautiful example, Allah says, O believers, do not destroy, do not abolish your charity. Through two things, bil wal other. Through boasting. This doesn't mean boasting as an arrogance or boasting to others. But more it means, bil man, means when you oblige the other person. You make them feel obliged. You make them feel you make them realise that you've done them a favour. Mun actually means announcing one's favour. Especially to the recipient of one's charity and donation. That's one thing. Other, too, is harm. Or trouble. And what this refers to is pressure. So when we give in charity, the two things are mun and other that we must avoid. Mun is by boasting or announcing of our favour to anybody, especially to the person. Who is a recipient of our donation. To make them feel obliged. To make them feel as though they are indebted to you in any way. That destroys one's charity. And to use one's charity as leverage in any way. Or to harm a person. Or to apply pressure on them. That is other... That's the second thing that destroys one's charity. And then Allah gives the example that this is similar to a rock safwan means a smooth rock, a very, not a jagged, rough rock. Safwan means a smooth rock, a boulder, which is as smooth as a pedal. عليه <coughs> فَمثَلُهُ <coughs> <coughs> On that safwan, on that smooth boulder, or rock, is soil, dust. فَأَصَابَهُ Wabil So a heavy torrent of water or rain falls on that rock. What does it do? It washes everything away very quickly. It leaves it smooth and bare. What's the meaning of that? Example, what's the meaning of that parable? It's a very beautiful parable. The safwan, the rock, is a book of one's deeds in the hereafter. The soil is one sadaqah, dry soil, not wet and not sticky, but dry dust on the rock. That is one's good deed, one's sadaqah, one's charity. It's there. It's not fixed. It's not ingrained. It's not embedded. In that a person says, it's there, it's registered, it's recorded. It's never going to go anywhere. No, it's resting very precariously. Anything could happen. A gust of wind. A torrent of rainfall. Anything could happen. It remains vulnerable. And then, Wabil, the heavy rain, the torrent of water that falls on it. What is that? That is one's man and other, one's boasting, one's announcing one's favour, one's leverage, one's pressure, one's inconveniencing the recipient of one's donation. When it falls, what does it do? It washes the charity away and it leaves one's book of deeds bare, just like the rock. That's why Allah then immediately says, They will not gain. Anything of what they have earned. So we may be depositing, or we think we are depositing, our bank account in the Akhirah with good deeds. But, it's a fluctuating balance. And not only that, but it's very precariously rested. Any misdeed on our part, even after many years, could wreck, or even totally abolish, the good that we have done. So, when Allah says here, "O it'aam, feeding," it doesn't just mean feeding for the sake of honouring people. Allah qualifies that, "O it'aam fi in a day of hunger. Of course, honouring people, feeding and feasting with one's friends, family, and guests. That has its own reward and virtue in another way, but it's not considered charity. Charity is, or feeding on a day of hunger, when people are in need to feed people in need, without any hope of reward, no currency. Our charity cannot be a currency. Our gift cannot be a currency. And that's why Allah mentions, mentions in a surah of the Quran, quoting those who will succeed in the akhirah. What would they do? They would feed people. And when they fed people, they said and they believed and they thought of themselves in the following way. We feed you only for the sake of Allah. We do not seek any reward from you or even gratitude. That is the meaning of charity in Islam. When a person gives and they don't expect thanks, if they even feel momentarily that the person never showed any gratitude, the person never said thank you, the person never expressed any appreciation, then is that what we were expecting from our sadaqah? Those who give sincerely, they give in such a way that, لِوَجْهِ اللَّهِ لَا نُرِيدُ مِنْكُمْ جَزَاءً وَلَا شكورا. We seek no reward from you, nor even gratitude, not even thanks. And there's another beautiful phrase about giving charity. thbitum min Allah mentions that in the Qur'an. min And giving charity, how? With steadfastness from themselves. With assurance from themselves. Very beautiful phrase. What does that mean? It means that when they give charity, once they've given it, sometimes a person may give in charity. Let's say a person gives a thousand pounds in charity. And then afterwards, they may not financially feel the pinch, but in their heart at least, there's an element of doubt. Should I have given that much? What about if I need some time? If there is even the slightest regret, that affects one's charity. So what the meaning of what the thbidam min anfusim is, they give it with assurance from themselves. When they give, they give. It's gone. They are happy. There is not a moment of pang or regret. There is not a single pang of regret. There is no hesitation no reservation whatsoever. They are content. They've given their charity in the name of Allah. They don't expect any reward or thanks or gratitude. Nor do they even think about it again. Except how would the Sahaba radiallahu anhum think of their charity. They would give and they would be fearful that has Allah accepted our charity or not. So... Sadaqah is when a person gives in charity and feeds people on a day of hunger. And the sahaba رضي الله عنهم, that's how they were. Their example was beautiful when it came to exp- spending and giving. Feeding people in hunger, Allah says in the Holy Qur'an, about the ansar sahaba رضي الله عنهم, وَالَّذِينَ الدَّارَ وَالْإِيمَانَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ يحبون من هاجر إليهم ولا يجدون في صدورهم حاجة مما ويؤثرون على أنفسهم ولو كان بهم خصاصة. That one phrase. ويؤثرون على أنفسهم ولو كان بهم خصاصة. That they give privilege and preference to others over themselves even though they themselves are in need. That is the height of charity when a person doesn't just feed others in need. But they feed others when they themselves are in need. And this is why I'm saying we all feed each other. We hold feasts, we hold banquets, we hold. we honour people, family, friends, functions. We have enough to feed ourselves and everybody else. And when we feed other people, as I said, it's a form of currency, it's a favour. It's a favor for which we expect payback later. Whether we get it or not is besides the point. Deep down in our hearts and minds, it's a favor. It's a payment that we are making. It's actually a trade. It's what we call bayr salam Bayr salam means in the sharia where you pay first and you expect the goods to be given to you and delivered later. Or manufactured and given later. So we make the payments first. We feed people. We give them gifts. This is our payment. We'll collect our product when the time comes. We'll collect our favor when the time comes. So, but the Sahaba their charity was such that they gave selflessly. Imam Abu Dawood and Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi alayhim I both relate from Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu He says, and others relate the same hadith too, that once the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa made an announcement for donations for charity, When he made that announcement, on that occasion, I had some wealth. It coincided with me having some wealth. (coughs) So, I said to myself in my heart, since he was always competing with Abu Bakr, he said, this day, I shall outdo Abu Bakr. If I can outdo him on any day, it will be this day. So he said, I took half of my wealth, and I left half. And I approached the Prophet. And the Prophet said, O oh Umar, what have you brought? He said, Ya Rasulullah, I have brought half of. He said, What have you left? He said, O oh Messenger of Allah, I have brought half of my wealth and I have left as much at home. So half. then, just then, Abu Bakr came. And the Prophet sallallahu asked him Oh Abu Bakr, what have you brought? Or what have you left? And he said, oh messenger of Allah I have brought everything And I have left Allah and his Rasul at home For my family So Umar radiallahu anhu said That by Allah I realized I will never be able to outdo Abu Bakr So that's how the Sahaba radiallahu anhu gave And Speaking of this, fi Feeding on a day of need. Not just feeding others on a day of need sincerely, without any hope of reward, thanks, gratitude, or payback in this world. They would feed others when they were in need themselves. Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, and many others, all relate. A very beautiful hadith. That one night... The Prophet was approached by a companion who said to him, Ya Rasulullah, I am in great need. So the Prophet sent a messenger to one of the wives and inquired, is there any food at home to feed this guest? So the wife replied, by Allah, I only have water. There is no food in the house. Say salam to the messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and inform him that there is no food at home, only water. So he came back. The prophet sallallahu sent him to another wife. One by one, he went to all of the wives of the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and this was these were the homes of the messenger, and he they all said. Give the messenger our salam and inform him that we have no food at home to feed his guest, only water. So the Prophet wasallam made an announcement that who will feed the guest of Rasulullah wasallam? Who will feed this guest of ours? So Abu Talha lansari an sprung up, unhesitatingly. He didn't call home to ask. Unhesitatingly, he sprung up and he said, I will O messenger of Allah. Now the l- l- latter part of the hadith will explain why he said he didn't call home, he didn't inquire from home first. Because he arrived at home, he took the guest, he arrived at home, and after he arrived at home, he said to his wife, Umm Salim radiyallahu anha, that... Do you have any food in the house? Allahu Akbar. So she said, only enough for the children. So Umut al radiyallahu anhu said to her, Let us not hold back with the guest of the Messenger of Allah. This night we are honored for we have the greatest guest. So he said, dim the lamp. Put the children to sleep. Put the children to sleep, dim the lamp, and make it serve the food, and make it appear to him that we are eating too. So they sat down. She put the children to sleep. They sat down. They had no food whatsoever. And she dimmed the lamp. And in the words of the hadith, it's mentioned in some of the narrations, that they were acting by lifting their hands to their mouths as though they were eating morsels of food. Yet they were hungry. The guest ate. the next morning, the next day, Abu Talha al-Ansari says, when my time arrived to visit the messenger, he had a regular time, as did the other sahaba, and they would regularly go to visit the messenger. So when the time arrived, and I went to see him, the Prophet said to him, said to me, what did you and your family do last night? What did you do, what did you two do last night? So Abu Talha al radiallahu momentarily thought, and he actually says in the narration, that for a moment I feared that my guest had complained to the Messenger of Allah about me. Then the Prophet sallallahu wasallam straight away said, Jibreel alayhi salam came to me and informed me that Allah has marveled at what you and your family did yesterday. And he revealed a verse of the Quran. خصاصة, that they give privilege and preference to others over themselves, even though they are themselves in need. Then Allah ends the verse with the words, المفلحون, And whoever is saved and protected from the greed and the avarice of his soul, then these are the ones who are successful. True, it's greed. It's greed that makes us hold on to everything that we have. It's greed that prevents us from sharing. Once we can get rid of that greed, then not only are we successful, as Allah says, we will be clean-hearted. So the second thing of the aqabah, the first thing is freeing people. The second thing is feeding people. But feeding people especially in when they are in need. <coughs> and then Allah mentions feeding who? Yatiman Da maqrabah. an orphan of relation. An orphan who is a close who is a relative. Two things here. One, the orphan. This requires a whole topic that's dedicated to just the rights of orphans and the virtue of looking after orphans. The Prophet was an orphan. His father passed away before he was born whilst he was still in his mother's womb. His mother passed away when he was only six years old. And he was left without a father, a mother, a si- or any brother or sister, no siblings. So more than anyone else, the Prophet felt and experienced and lived the life and the ordeal of an orphan. And that's why he paid special attention to the rights of orphans. And the Quran warned the people of the time. For it was quite common to consume the wealth of orphans. In fact, it's thus been a common practice. Orphans are helpless, defenseless, vulnerable. And one of the manifestations of their vulnerability, especially during the time of the before the time of the Prophet is that using their custody and the claim of bringing them up as an excuse, people would unlawfully take their wealth, squander it, consume it, and squander it. So Allah subhanahu wa taala in the Quran warns against this in the strongest of terms. إن الذين يأكلون أموال اليتامى ظلما إنما يأكلون في بطونهم نارا وسياسلون الصعيرة. Allah says, "Verily, those who consume the wealth of orphans unlawfully, they are only إنما يأكلون في بطونهم نارا. They are only, they are merely consuming fire in their stomachs, and they will enter the blaze." So, the orphans. There's a great virtue in looking after orphans, in bringing joy to their hearts, not just to feed them and to clothe them, but to even compensate for that love and emotion and attention and affection that they have lost. Anton, parenting isn't just about providing food and clothing and accommodation. Parenting is about compassion and mercy. Love, affection and attention As the verse later says That they encourage one another to Marhamah, compassion and mercy So yatima, And as the Prophet alaihi said I And the custodian Or the guardian Or the carer of an orphan Will be like this In Jannah. And he brought together his fingers. The second thing is the makraba of relation. Relation relatives are, have always been given preference over others, even in charity. And this very important point here, Silatul rahim in Islam plays a very big part in goodness and in virtue, silatul rahim. Silatul Rahim means the bonding of blood, the joining of kinship. In Islam that praise that plays a very big part. And that's why in the hadith the Prophet says that if someone gives in charity to a relative, he shall enjoy two rewards. One, the reward of charity, sadaqah, and the other, reward of silatul rahim, of bonding one's blood and joining one's kinship. And if someone gives to a non relative, then they shall enjoy the reward of sadaqah, but not of silatul rahim. And silatul rahim is very important in Islam. This is why the Idea Of family Of a family unit Of a family hierarchy Of respecting the seniors Of showing compassion and love to the juniors To the young Of bonding blood Of considering one's family relations That is extremely important in Islam And Allah warns about that In the Quran Allah encourages us To be mindful of that In the Quran in Surah Al-Nisa at the beginning. This is actually one of the verses which the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used to recite at the time of marriage. Nikah. It's part of the khutbah of nikah. And part of that is, وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ Bihi Wal Arham. وَالْأَرْحَامُ That fear that's Allah in whose name you do ask for marriage of one another. Arham. And fear the relations. Fear Allah in these relations too. In this day and age, especially when a person feels they can be independent, there's this attitude of, I don't need my father, I don't need my mother, I don't need my brothers or sisters, I don't need my relatives. That's because we feel we can be independent. We feel we can make our own way. We can choose our own friends. We are not in need or in, or dependent on our relatives in any way whatsoever. But traditionally, people have always been dependent on one another. This was the families were solace. They were comfort. They were protection. They were a fallback. So. And it should be done sincerely. I've related this story before. My father, rahmatullahi alayhim,
1: there was a scholar,
0: I used to visit him with my father. He was very old, he was one of my father's teachers. And my father was very close to him, and I would visit him with my father. My father said to me, do you know how pious he is? Let me give you an example of Silatul Rahim. He said, This teacher of mine, as is common, happens in families. A family member, his own family member, their child was married to his child. In fact, his daughter. So, one of his relatives' daughters, uh, one of his relatives' sons, was married to his daughter. And he mistreated her. And having mistreated her, he divorced her. And not only, there's a long story, I don't want to go into the details, but along with. And there was another son married to another daughter, so along with sons mistreating their wives and divorcing their wives, who were his daughters, that same family member also confiscated his lands, which he had in another country. Since he was here and he never had access, permanent access to those lands and to that property. So he was left impoverished. And yet every year, I believe in Ramadan, he would send money to that same family member. So my father said to him that, they have done all of this to you. And you still send money for them. You still send gifts, you still send money to them. And his reply was silencing. He said, whatever they've done is between them and Allah. But I still have a duty to practice Silatul rahim, and this mentioned in the hadith. Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam says, "ليس الواسل بالمكافئ ولكن الواسل الذي إذا قطعت رحمه وصلها." The reciprocator is not the one who bonds relation. The reciprocator is not the keeper of kinship or the bonding or the bonder of blood. The bonder of blood and the keeper of kinship is one who when his relations are severed, he joins them. So the meaning of the hadith is all this virtue about keeping good relations, bonding blood and maintaining kinship with one's family members... It's not simply by reciprocation. Whereby he does good, so I do good. He keeps it good with me, so I keep it good with him. The Prophet ﷺ says, This isn't silatul rahim. You are merely repaying, you are merely reciprocating. You're just being equal. The wasil, the keeper of kinship and the bonder of blood, and the real person who exercise, is one who when the other person severs their relationship, cuts their ties of kinship, removes their ties of blood, this person, despite that, moves forward and joins relations, keeps the kinship, bonds of blood. And, subhanAllah, this example of my father's teacher is a perfect application of that hadith. So there's much emphasis in Islam, and this comes down to charity as well. How many of us would think that when it comes to giving in charity, we should give preference to those who are in need amongst our relatives first, rather than anybody else? We are quite willing to give in charity to people who are totally anonymous and who may be thousands of miles away, which is good. It's an act of virtue. Undoubtedly, it's good. But for some reason, we tend to hide our wealth from our own closest relatives. And we would refuse to spend on them, even if they are in need. Whereas in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in that this. ليس البر أن تولوا وجوهكم قبل المشرق والمغرب, ولكن البر من آمن بالله واليوم الآخر والملائكة والكتاب والنبيين, وآت المال على حبه ذب القربة واليتامة. والمساكين وابن السبيل والسائلين وفرّقاب وأقام الصلاة وآت الزكاة والمؤفون بأحدهم إذا عاهدوا والصابرين في البأساء والضرائِ وحين البأس أولئك الذين صدقوا أولئكهم المتقون. a very long verse in which Allah praises the believers of many for many good deeds. But Subhanallah. Before all of the good deeds that are mentioned in this lengthy verse. The first thing after belief and iman in Allah is, وَآتَ mal. He gives على hubb in the name of the love of Allah, or despite the love of wealth, to whom? wil الْقُرْبَةِ To one's relatives. yatama And to orphans. masakin And to the poor and needy. So even the masakin and even the yateen comes after one's own relatives. And then, later Allah says, وَأَقَامُ الصَّلَاةُ وَآتَ zakah," <الزكاة> And who establishes salah, <coughs> and who gives zakah. So subhanAllah, is this a repetition? Earlier on Allah said, al mal," And here, وَآتَ zakah." <الزكاة> he gives wealth. And later on Allah says, and He gives zakah. No, there's no repetition. It's very simple. وَأَقَامُ الصَّلَاةُ He establishes Wa صَلَاةُ وَآتَ zakah. And he gives fard zakah. But even before fard zakah, Allah praises. And Allah honours these people for giving in charity, optional charity, nafl, without zakah, which is non-obligatory. And the first category is not even zakah. So this isn't simply a question of giving zakah to one's relatives. Because sometimes a person feels that I have to give my zakah. Sometimes... When people go around collecting zakah for uh, poor people in other countries, some people have a tendency to say, Jazakumullahu khaira, you came to us. Because we were worried, where do we give our zakah? So it's like a duty that we have to do, we have to perform. And we want someone to help us in that duty, find someone to give zakah. It's very easy for us, we just give them money and they go and spend and deliver it to those who are in need. But Allah subhanahu wa So even if we were to give to one's relatives, it's like a duty fulfilled. Allah says, not farad zakah, but optional charity. The first category is the bil one's own relatives. So here the two are combined. So giving, feeding. يتي, on a day of hunger. yatiman dha An orphan of need. Aw miskeenan dha Or a poor person. Of dust, and I explain what this means, is that someone who is totally destitute, it can mean someone who's homeless, because someone who's homeless, they sleep on the ground, on the dust of the earth, helping someone who's (laughs) homeless. That's a miskin. Of the dust, helping someone who is homeless, helping someone who is so poor, so impoverished, so much in need, so downtrodden, that they are literally on the floor. Covered in dust. Helping such people is part of the aqaba It may not be easy, but Allah says you must plunge yourselves into this task of overcoming the aqaba of scaling the aqaba so that you may succeed. Furthermore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, ثُمَّ كَانَ مِنَ Then along with all of these good deeds, he is one of those who has believed. There are many verses in the Quran which speak of this. Whoever does good. Man or woman. whilst being a mu'min, whilst being a believer. min untha. mu'min, whoever performs good deeds, of the good deeds. Man or woman, whilst being a believer. There are many such verses throughout the Qur'an. So along with Giving in charity, spending, feeding, freeing. the min aladina. He is one of those who have believed. And who have counseled one another to patience and counseled one another to compassion. As I said last week and even in the seat of Surah Al-Shams, individual piety is good, but it's not sufficient. Because one has to ensure that one's surroundings, one's environment, one's company, all of these things are also good. A single rose in a garden full of brambles, thorns, weeds, poisonous plants and bushes might be beautiful, it might be striking, It single-handedly may give light and beauty to the whole garden and fragrance, but it's extremely vulnerable. And its life is definitely short. Because within a short time, the brambles, the bushes, the weeds, the nettles, the thorns, will overwhelm it. will obliterate it. So... Individual piety is good, but we are always affected. We're affected by people around us all the time. We're affected by our environment. So much so that we're affected by animals, as Hadith of Bukhari have explained on many occasions. Prophet <laughs> says that boastfulness and arrogance and haughtiness is to be found in the camel herders. And tranquillity and serenity and composure are to be found in the shepherds. Why is that? SubhanAllah, the meaning is of Bukhari and others. That the camel herders, they spend their time with camels. And camels are very difficult to control, very stubborn, very obstinate, very hard-headed temperamental, unpredictable. And one cannot call camels humble. So all of that boastfulness, harshness, that temperamental behavior, he actually finds its way somehow into the camel herders and the shepherds. They're surrounded by sheep and goats. And they are so docile, cute, lovely, humble, serene, tranquil, docile, obedient. It takes one little puppy to control a whole herd. That tranquility, that serenity, that calmness, that composure, that softness, that gentleness... In the animals, in the sheep and goats, finds its way, in the sheep, actually in these lambs, finds its way, finds their way into the shepherd. And even now people say, soon people, people, when they live with their pets, they actually begin to act like their pets. And don't laugh, but a few years ago I actually read something which I will leave you to investigate and decide, that people actually begin to look like their pets. Not just behave like them, but actually look like them. So, I'm just quoting. You, you can go and verify it for yourself and research the matter if it's intrigues you. But subhanAllah, people do begin to act like their pets. And Rasulullah wasallam said this then, that... Arrogance and boastfulness are to be found in camel herders. And serenity, tranquility and composure are to be found in sheep, uh, in the shepherds. So if a human being is so deeply affected even by pets and animals, by sheep and camels, imagine how greatly we are influenced and how deeply we are affected, how profoundly we are influenced. By live, walking, talking, engaging, interacting, intelligent, conversant human beings around us. Full of ideas and thoughts with the exchange of thoughts, ideas and conversation. Are we not affected? Are we not affected by behavior, observed behavior? So individual piety is good. But one has to ensure that one's surroundings are pious and pure. One's environment is pious and pure and only then when there is collective good when there's collective purity collective piety will it be healthy and beneficial for everybody so this is what the sharia this is what the quran and the hadith both say that one can't just suffice by saying that i as long as i am good it doesn't matter and the verse of the Quran, Ya ayyuhallaveena amanu alaykum anfusakum la yadurukum man dhalla That, O oh believers, concern yourselves with yourselves. La yadurukum man dhalla Those who are misguided cannot harm you as long as you have found guidance. That verse has to be understood in its proper context, and there's a famous hadith of Abu Thalab al-Khushani radiyallahu anhu. And he said, I wondered about this. Yeah, someone approached him and said, what do you say about this verse? So he said, you've asked the right person. I wondered about this verse, and I asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to me, لا بل اتمروا بالمعروف وانهوا عن anil-munkar. No, you should enjoin the good and you should forbid the evil. Until... You should enjoin the good, you should encourage, you should discourage, you should forbid the evil. Until you see, then he mentioned four things, he didn't use the term four, but he mentioned four things. Until you see greed, the same شُحًا which came in that verse. Until you see greed which is followed. Until you see desire which is obeyed. Until you see the dunya being given given preference in everything. And until you see everyone being pleased with their own opinion. Enjoy the good and forbid the evil until these things happen. When you see these things, then you should concern yourself with yourself because there is no hope but it doesn't mean all over if a person finds themselves in a place or a situation where these four things are evident and a person's not going to listen at all then fine but the meaning of the verse is beautiful ya amanu alaykum anfusakum o believers concern yourselves with yourselves la man those who are who are misguided cannot harm you idhahtadaytum as long as you have found guidance Do you know what the meaning of finding guidance is? According to who? None other than the leader of the Sahaba, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, he would say that the meaning of unless uh, as long as you have found guidance is The meaning of finding guidance is to enjoin the good and to forbid the evil. So as long as you enjoin the good and forbid the evil, and you do your duty, then those who are misguided cannot harm you. So it's not sufficient to be individually pious. One has to counsel one another, one has to encourage one another, one has we all have to remind each other. And that's why what the Sabr they counsel one another to patience, what the they counsel one another to mercy. And even in Surah al asr innal insana lāfi khusr. By time, man is indeed in a state of great loss, except for those who have believed and who have practiced good deeds. And who have counseled one another to the truth, and who have counseled one another to patience and perseverance. So here as well, they've counselled one. It's individual belief in piety is good. But we are also commanded by Allah to enjoin the good, to forbid the evil. And enjoining the good and forbidding the evil doesn't mean necessarily mean in a harsh way. But to remind, to encourage, to discourage, to advise, to share, to be concerned. And then... What's patience? Patience, we don't have time to explain in thorough detail, maybe on another occasion. But patience, sabr in Islam, sabr in the Qur'an, doesn't mean patience in English. Patience simply means patience. It's normally in relation to a misfortune, suffering, or calamity. And sometimes we misunderstand patience to mean suffering in silence. That's not what patience is. Patience in Islam refers to Steadfastness. Perseverance. And the meaning of patience and calamity and misfortune is as follows. Patience doesn't mean suffering in silence. If someone dies, what can the bereaved do? What can they do? They are helpless. They have to suffer in silence. They cannot resurrect the dead. They cannot revive the, the past. They cannot revive the deceased. They have to accept. They have to suffer in silence. They have to accept. Sabr in Islam is not acceptance or suffering in silence. So what is sabr? As the Prophet ﷺ said, Sadmatil Patience is only at the time of the first shock. So if someone learns of bereavement, what do they do? If they suddenly start wailing and screaming and become hysterical, and then later they calm down, that is not patience. Because as the Prophet wasallam said, patience is only at the time of the first shock. Ultimately, eventually, once the initial shock has passed, a person accepts. A person concedes defeat. A person suffers in silence. But it's one's reaction at the time of the first shock which marks the character of a person. If someone provokes you and you react... And you may become abusive or violent or uncontrollable and enraged. And in one's rage, one behaves inappropriately. And later a person calms down, as everybody does. No one can remain in a constant fit of rage. They wouldn't be human. It's just not humanly possible. One's calmness and composure and silence later... Does nothing to change the fact of how they reacted in the first instance. So patience mean does not mean acceptance. Patience does not mean suffering in silence. Patience means perseverance. And the meaning of perseverance and steadfastness is that a person remains obedient to Allah. Calm and composed and steadfast upon the teaching of Allah and the sunnah of his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Even in affliction, even in difficulty, even in conflict, a person does not sin, a person does not transgress. A person behaves. And that's why one of the sahaba radiallahu he learnt of a family member passing away. He was riding at the time. He stopped, dismounted and performed salah. So that someone asked him that you learn of your family members' death and you get off your mount and you perform salah. So he said, does not Allah say in the Quran, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُنُوا اِسْتَعِينُوا بِالصَّبْرِ salah إِنَّ اللَّهُمْ أَصَّابِرِينَ O believers, seek assistance through salah, through patience and salah. Verily, Allah is with those who are patient. That's the meaning of steadfastness. That's the meaning of perseverance. That's the meaning of sabr. Sabr is not when a person reacts wildly at the first instance. I'm not speaking about death or bereavement, but even a provocation. And then later calms down and accepts. Sabr is when a person is unprovoked even in the face of provocation. Remains calm, controls their speech, controls their behavior, doesn't misbehave, doesn't abuse That's the meaning of sabr. And sabr, the test of patience, is always at the first shock. And that requires a lot of training. It requires a lot of self-discipline and control. And we should try to achieve that. That's true sabr. Where even in the face of provocation, one can continue to smile and remain calm. And composed. And not do anything wrong. Not Not say anything wrong. Not do anything wrong. Not to misbehave, not to react wrongly. That's the meaning of sabr. We should exercise that sabr ourselves and encourage and remind others to do so. And those who have counseled one another too, marhamah, compassion and mercy. Prophet was the perfect example of compassion and mercy. He was even asked to curse the enemy. And when asked to curse the enemy, on the day of battle, he actually said, Allah has not, I have not been sent as one to curse. I have been sent as a mercy. And he was, As Allah says, We have not sent you except as a mercy for the world. And that means mercy and compassion to everyone. I was speaking about family earlier on. Children. Let us follow in the footsteps of the Prophet wasallam. He showed love and compassion. He showed marhamah and mercy. To young, to old, to men, to women, to children. Even to animals. Even to animals. And what kind of compassion and mercy to children. Not just to one's own children but to others' children. And that's not that easy. Normally we grew up in Masajid. As I've said on many occasions, we grew up in the Masjid. So we would witness how parents would behave, how older people would behave. You would always see them, especially in Taraweeh Salah, in Ramadan, shouting and berating everyone else's children. Their own children are running around and wreaking havoc in the Masjid. But they're always shouting at everybody else's children and never their own. And then other parents shout at other people's children and never their own. Our children can never do any wrong. We always consider other children. We make many excuses for our own children, (coughs) our own loved ones. But no excuses, no concession for anybody else. But to a certain degree it's human nature. But subhanAllah, (coughs) even considering that... Look at how the Prophet sallallahu wasallam treated other children <laughs> by Allah. He treated other people's children and strangers with more love and compassion than we could ever treat our own children. Sayyidina Anas al Malik radiallahu says, I served Rasulullah sallallahu wasallam for 10 years. Never once did he say uf to me, never once did he berate me. Never once did he scold me. Never once did he say to me, Why did you do something for something I shouldn't have done, or why didn't you do something for something I should have done? Ten years, subhanAllah. And he served him. He was in attendance like a page boy who would run errands. Once he sent him. So he went. But Anas radiallahu says, like any child, I was reluctant to go, so I came outside And there were children playing, so I began playing with them So the Prophet realized that he was delayed So he came out and he found him playing So he came up behind him and put his hands on his eyes When Anas al realized This was the Messenger وسلم, He said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm going, I'm going <laughs> Subhanallah and that was with other people's children. And as I mentioned in the hadith last week, Imam Abu Dawud and Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi both relate from Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As who says, The Prophet said, and this is normally the first hadith which most students of hadith hear from their teachers. It's known as Al-Hadith al musalsal bil-Awwaliyah. The hadith which is Chained by precedents. So, the hadith are chained. So, the teacher does with the hadith exactly as his teacher did with him. And his teacher received the hadith in the same way as his teacher received the hadith before him. And there are many instances of chained hadith. One of the chains, which I even shared with some of you when you were present is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas in Bukhari, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, لا تحردك به لسانك لتعجل به إن علينا جمعه وقرآنه Do not move your tongue in to hasten with the Qur'an. So Abdullah ibn Abbas, when he related this hadith, he practically demonstrated to the students how the Prophet sallallahu would move his lips, to which Allah has said to him, don't move your lips, don't move your tongue. So he would say that he would, when he received the revelation, he would read alongside Jibreel and he would and he would do as I am doing for you, that's what Abdullah ibn Abbas said. Then he moved his lips in such a manner. So he recited under his breath, and he was moving his lips. Or oh, he said anything, and he moved his lips. So the students of Abdullah ibn Abbas, they did the same with their students. Their students did the same with their students. And this continued till today. So even we, when we first heard this hadith, our teachers, all of them, moved their lips in the manner of their teachers, going back with a chain all the way to Abdullah ibn Abbas, رضي anhumah. ...who moved his lips just as the Prophet sallallahu moved his lips. That's known as... Uh, ...the uh, hadith which is chained by the movement of lips. So this is the hadith, al hadith which is known as the hadith chained by precedence. In the sense that this is normally the first hadith with the teachers relate to their students. So... Uh, the Hadith is: Rahimun, yarhamuhum al-Rahman, irhamuhum in the earth, yarhamukum in the sky." Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said, "The Rahimun, the compassionate ones, the merciful ones. Yarhamuhum al-Rahman, the compassionate, the gracious is merciful to them. Irhamuhum in the earth, be merciful to those who are on earth." He who is in the heavens will be merciful to you. So, compassion, mercy. And in the hadith later by Imam Bukhari, the Prophet said, Allah does not have mercy on one who does not show mercy to the people. One who withholds his compassion from the people, Allah will withhold his compassion and mercy from him. And in the hadith later by Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Asr, same Sahabi, Again, in Tirmidhi and Abu Dawood, he relates that the Prophet ﷺ said, "Whoever is not compassionate to the young amongst us, to our young, and whoever does not recognize the right of the elder ones amongst us, then he is not of us." Part of being in the Ummah of Rasulullah is to show love and compassion and mercy to the young and show respect to the seniors. Respect is part and parcel of our religion. The Prophet says in this hadith whoever fails to respect our elders and recognize their right, he's not one of us. He is not one of us. There is much more that can be said about mercy but I'll end here. And let's finish off the surah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Those who have these qualities. Those who scale the ascent. Those who plunge against the obstacle. Those who squeeze themselves into this narrow path and come out the other side successfully. Those people who attempt the aqabah and the Aqaba are these things, then what is their reward? أُولَٰئِكَ ashabul maimana. These are the people of the rights. On yawmul Qiyamah, they shall receive their book in their right hands. فَأَمَّا مَنْ أُوْتِيَ كِتَابُهُ بِيَمِينَهِ فَيَقُولُ One who, as Allah says in Surah Al-Haqqa, he who receives his book, In the right hand on the day of judgment He shall announce to the people Come, come and read my book Verily I am sure that I have received my reward And then Allah mentions quite a lot Of his rewards. And then وَأَمَّا مَنْ أُوْتِيَ كِتَابُهُ بِشِمَالِهِ And as for one who is given his book in the left Then he shall wail so Allah ends the surah with the words, These are the companions of the right. Hum As for those who have disbelieved in our signs, they are the people of the left. Over them is a fire closed. I, I won't explain this in more detail, because this has already been covered. In a similar phrase, in surah al-humazah. So refer to Suratul humazah at the end. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand, may he make us amongst those who do scale the ascent and who do attempt the aqabah and make us amongst those who are worthy of such deeds and of being of the right, and being given our book of deeds in the right hand on yawmul qiyamah. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044 121 771 3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under licence by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorised distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.